You know, as we continue on our fall sermon series and talk about the life of King David, you know, if you think about the last few weeks as we've talked about David, it's pretty much been glowing. You know, we began with David's call, and he's referred to as a a man after God's own heart. And we referred to all the great things he's done. In fact, if you could think about headlines about David's life, you know, Unknown shepherd boy. Rags to riches. Fugitive becomes king. You know, it would be a great headline. You know, giant slayer, rescuer of Israel. All these wonderful headlines that we could come up with with David. And he wrote at least 73 psalms. And there's 59 references to him in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament figure. And they're all glowing. Did you get this picture of this incredible guy? This wonderful man of God. And all these accolades piled up on him. And he leaves a great legacy. However, then we come to today's passage. The passage of David and Bathsheba. And it's like, what happened? What happened to this man who was so centered on the Lord? Whose heart was so given over to him that all these wonderful things you could say about him and then all of a sudden, something changed. Something got unhooked. See, and part of the problem with David is he had worked so hard and he had aspired and he had grown so tremendously, but then he arrived. And what I mean by he arrived is he got to the place where he became complacent. And he no longer was driven to succeed for the Lord and succeed for his people because he had gotten to a place of being comfortable. And it's always dangerous when you get to that place of being comfortable. See, there was a warning given, and I referred to it last week, that was given by Moses. It was a prophecy from the Lord in Deuteronomy. Toward the end of Moses' life, as he was preparing the people for crossing over to the promised land, and he said, you know, once you get there, you're going to look around, and you're going to see all these different nations And the kings of these different nations. And you're going to want to be like them. Always happens. We want to be like them. And see, there's a problem. When you want to be like them and your king ends up being like them. There's a problem. And so there was a warning given. The people say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around me. And the Lord says, he must not acquire many wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Also, silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. When he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of the law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall remain with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, diligently observing all the words of this law and these statutes. In other words, when he arrives, what he needs to focus on is continuing to stay focused on the word of God at the center of his life. And to continue to pray and stay close to the Lord and worship. That's what's going to keep him on the straight and narrow. But if he drifts, 
His eyes are going to be set on wealth, and his eyes are going to be set on women and multiplying women. And he's not going to be content, and he's going to pursue pleasure. And there's going to be problems after that. So he needs to stay fixed on the Lord, and the Word will help him stay focused on that. Sounds reasonable. Well, the problem is, for those of you that were not here last week, I ended on the four S's that can creep in, that crept in with David. And you get a warning a little before the passage today. And the warning comes in 2 Samuel 5. In Jerusalem, after he came from Hebron, David took more concubines and wives. Okay, there we go. There's the warning. Okay, and he had already arrived with all this wealth, and he's building houses, and he's just become very, very successful. And the first S of the four S's is silver. See, once you become very wealthy and you get comfortable and complacent, <coughs> then the second S, S, you become slothful. You get lazy. Instead of going out and fighting the battles and seeking to lead the people the way you're supposed to, you start to turn inward and comfortable and easy. And then you start turning to pleasure. The third S, sex. Just represents pleasure. And your eyes start wandering and you look around. And then the fourth S, self. You start serving yourself instead of serving the Lord. And it's a progression. And see, when you're a king, there's an additional an additional temptation that goes along with that complacency and with that progression. You become the law. Because you can get away with almost anything. Because you are the law. You set the law. And so you seek to justify and pride creeps in. And there's actually a scripture in Corinthians that warns about this. It says, so if you think you are standing, watch out so that you do not fall. When you get to that place of you know, real comfort and real security in yourself, then you're right for a fall. And you have to be so, so careful. And so David's in that place, and he doesn't go out, and he doesn't lead the people, and he just goes out on his porch. And so you could almost call this pre-electronic pornography. He's looking out, and he sees Bathsheba. And instead of immediately going, oh, he doesn't do that. He keeps looking, voyeuristically, and he gets sucked in, and he invites her to the house. And, of course, being the upright woman she is, she says, no, no, that's not what happens. She's drawn in because, of course, David is referred to as handsome, and he's very successful, and he's very popular. So she's drawn in. <clears throat> Perfect scenario. And what happens in the meantime is that David ends up doing a lot of betrayal. Because Uriah the Hittite, if you know the history of Uriah the Hittite, he was his friend. He was one of the mighty men of valor. So there's betrayal there. And David compromises his witness, and he compromises his family, and he compromises his friendship, and he compromises his relationship with God. All because of a moment of pleasure. And that's what happens. It's so easy. 
It's so easy. Especially when you're king. Even if you're a man of God, a man after God's own heart. See, David, David was a wonderful guy, but he had this great strength. And someone once told me, your greatest strength can be a real Achilles heel if, if you're not careful. If you don't stay focused on the Lord, your greatest strength can become a great weakness. David's great strength was he was a man of passion and compassion. That was a great strength. He was so passionate. If you study his life over and over again, when he was a shepherd boy, he could have been a slug. He could have just sat around and led a a very leisurely life. He didn't do that. He taught himself how to play the lyre, a stringed instrument. He taught himself how to become an expert with the sling. He killed lions and bears and eventually Goliath. He wrote psalms, poetry. He was passionate. And then when he went out to visit his brothers at the front and saw Goliath, he became passionate for the Lord's honor, passionate for his people Israel. And then when he served Saul, even when Saul turned against him, he was passionate for the Lord's anointed, the king would not turn his hand against him. Passionate for his friend Jonathan. Over and over again, you see this passion coming out in his life. And the compassion for the other fugitives that would gather around him and some of them become his mighty men of valor. He had compassion on them. Compassion on, we talked about, Mephibosheth. He promised Saul... And Saul's son, Jonathan, that he would take care of any heirs that are left. So this lame son, Mephibosheth, who he could have killed, he had compassion on him. All this passion and compassion, great traits, unless, unless you become self-centered. Unless they become misdirected. No longer focused on the Lord, they become a potential hazard. And that's what happened. His passion turned elsewhere. Passion for pleasure, for lust. That he can justify. That he can betray his friend. And even have his friend killed. But God can redirect that. God can take that that mess that he made through repentance, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and redirect it back to himself. And that's why, whatever it is in our lives, David is not only a model for how failure can really hit us, no matter who we think we are before the Lord and who other people are before the Lord, but how we can come back And how the Lord can redirect us again back to himself. By conviction. By repentance. By the Spirit bringing transformation. But sometimes we can't get there on our own. 
Sometimes we need a friend. And there's this guy, Nathan the prophet. We ran into him a few weeks ago. Nathan the prophet, who David was getting geared up to build a temple, a house for the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant. And David said, I have this idea. And Nathan said, well, if you think it's a good idea, go ahead. And then Nathan went, as a good man of God would, and prayed about it. And the Lord said to Nathan, no, he's not the one to build it. So Nathan came back and said, David, sorry, you're not the one to build it. Your son is. So David said, okay, I'll gather everything together. I'll leave a legacy so he can build it and be successful. So David took the time and the effort and the resources, and he put everything aside so that when his son built the temple, it would be a success. So David did the right thing at that point. But Nathan was the one that said, you're not the one to build it. You're a warrior. We need someone who's a man of peace to build this house. So Nathan had already come to David and confronted him. This was a little more delicate. And you know, if you study the prophets, it's not necessarily a safe thing to be the confronter of a king. If you look at Elijah, you look at Elisha, you look at Jeremiah, you read some of the prophets who actually lost their lives, it's not a safe thing. Nathan was risking. But Nathan was not only a wonderful man of God himself and prayerful, he was brilliant. He was brilliant in how he did it. He was brilliant in his timing. You know what I mean by timing when you confront somebody? I mean, take me and my wife. Timing is everything when it comes to confronting. There's a good time and there's not a good time when it comes to confronting. I don't know if you've experienced that. But Nathan was brilliant. Pulled David aside and said, David, I've got to talk to you about something. Everything had already transpired. The affair, the pregnancy, Uriah was dead. Waited till a calmer moment. Knowing David's compassion and his passion, he drew on that. It's so important when you're going to confront somebody, know who they are. And he said i got a story to tell you. And he tells him this story that he knew would hook him. And David was incensed. And then Nathan just very slyly says, you are the man. Not, you're the man. It's not the way he said it. It's all about inflection, you know. You are the man. And it cut him to the heart. He knew. He knew. When the Lord speaks to your heart and you have a heart for the Lord, you'll know. You'll know. Because the Lord wants a restored relationship. He wants repentance. He wants that conviction that brings you back to himself. That's what he wants. Because he loves you. Understand that's what it's about. And we need friends like Nathan, by the way. And we need to be friends like Nathan. Why is it in our culture today? Confrontation needs to be ugly or not happen at all. Do you understand that's what's going on today? 
It's either ugly or it doesn't happen. And it doesn't have to be that way. If confrontation is done well, it's not about condemnation, it's about conviction. I want people to have a restored relationship with the Lord. I want restoration between people. Which means confrontation needs to happen now and then. I know I'm a confronter. And we need friends like that. We need friends who are willing to take that risk, like Nathan did, for us. And we need to be those kind of friends for other people, that out of love and good timing. And because we know people and we have a trust relationship, we can do that. We can do that. And you know the reality of what happened out of this? It led to repentance and forgiveness. That's the goal. That's always God's goal. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross, if you understand. That's the lengths that that God went to for us. For repentance and forgiveness and transformation of our lives. He wants us to change. He wants to bring forgiveness into relationships and transformation. That's what he's about. There's pain involved. That's also what Jesus showed. But that's what he wants to do for us and with us. And there's wounds. There's wounds. First of all, faithful are the wounds of a friend. If someone loves you, they might wound you. But then because of sin, there's wounds. And a lot of times those wounds heal, but sometimes there's scars. And those scars sometimes leave residual effects in families. And everything we see with David, we see visited on his family. We see one brother killing another brother because of a a sexual misstep in the family. We see what God promised about what's going to happen in the family happen to Absalom, a rebellious son. We see everything that David did visited on the family. That's what happens. Sometimes because of the the scars. God can forgive and restore and redeem and heal. Sometimes the scars leave a mark on the next generation. And we need to continue to pray and to work towards restoration and transformation and healing. And as you see in the story... God forgives. That's what that story is about. God forgives. And Nathan, Nathan didn't condemn. Nathan convicted and he forgave. You know, see, a lot of the problem 
a lot of times with situations like this is the hypocrisy. See, the reality is we're all sinners. We can all point the finger. Everybody in this room is a sinner. Anybody want to say they're exempt? No. We're all sinners. See, hypocrisy is when you're in denial, when you try to keep secrets. When you lie. And family secrets are pervasive and it leads to so much destruction and abuse. Alcoholism, drug addiction, pornography. And the destruction. Everybody says, you know, it's just me. I can do what I want. I'm an adult. doesn't hurt anybody else. Garbage. It affects me. It affects my relationship with the Lord. It affects other people. Pornography. You know, everybody wants to say, well, it's just about me. No, it's not. It's dehumanizing. It takes its toll on relationships. The people that make it. The sex trafficking behind it. I mean, you know, there's so many bad things about it. Sex outside of marriage. Doesn't matter whether it's before or during. God had a design. He laid out his design. There's a reason. So it's best for us and best for the family. That's what he says. It's his design. He loves us. He made us. He knows what's best for us. You know, it's really interesting how we always want to change it, though. The other material that I always quote from these days, it's not quite my other Bible, but it's something I always quote from The Economist. There's a new book out. It's called The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. Isn't that an intriguing title? Let me read to you what is written by this author. Ms. Perel recommends conversations rooted in, curio- in curiosity. Partners who probe the meaning of an affair are better able to bring into their relationship what might have been missing, be, be it candor, eroticism, or an awareness of a partner's allure to others. Let's find meaning in it. That's our culture. That's our culture. We always want to rewrite the rules. Hypocrisy. Let's deny that it really hurts us or affects us. We're consenting adults. We know better. Or I can do my own thing because... I'm in charge of my own life. See, God gave his advice in Deuteronomy 17. Have my word before you. Read it daily. See, it's complacency or pride that always gets in the way. And then our eyes and our hearts start to drift. But we are not about, hear this, we are not about condemnation. 
God's about conviction and transformation. Repentance and forgiveness. That's what God is about. If you understand the story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, <clears throat> that's what the story is about. If you understand the story in John chapter 8, that's what the story is about. It's the people that are around that want to judge and condemn. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. He's convicting. Go and sin no more. In other words, you've sinned. Don't do it again. But he doesn't condemn. He forgives. But see, there's another thing going on there. The people that were around, they weren't interested in the conviction and the transformation and the forgiveness. See, that's a problem. It's a problem with some of us. In our own lives or with other people. You know, the question always comes up, if the woman was caught in adultery, she had to have been doing it with someone else. Where is that other person? The guy. You know the guy? Where's he? See, this was not about bringing people to a place of conviction and transformation. This was not even about justice for both. This was about either judging the woman or catching Jesus. That's what it was about. And that's the wrong motive. See, what God's about, if you understand the cross, he's about saying, you need a Savior. You need a Savior. Because you're a sinner. And if you're in denial about that, then you're staying in hypocrisy. You know what hypocrisy, the word hypocrisy comes from? It comes from the word actor in the ancient Greek. Because all the actors wore masks. This is a great week to talk about wearing masks, by the way. Okay? Lots of people are going to be wearing masks this week. And we have become masters in our culture about wearing masks. Because we have social media, because we have wealth, because we have makeup, and we can look, make ourselves look pretty, and we have finances, we can hide, and we can buy stuff. We've become masters of hypocrisy and hiding. Instead of honesty before the Lord and repentance. And even honesty with each other. God wants a people transformed by the cross. Which means we allow the Holy Spirit to convict us. So that we might come out from behind the mask. So that we might help other people come out from behind the mask and find redemption and forgiveness and transformation and a heart restored to the Lord. And it takes conviction to get there. This is a good week to take off the mask. Let's pray.
Lord, the first thing we need to do is look behind our own mask and what's there. And take it off. To realize that you desire not to condemn, but to forgive. That's why you sent your son to the cross in our place for our sin. Knowing we need a savior. Lord, we pray this day that for the brokenness in our own lives and the brokenness in families. That people would come to that place. That they would seek your forgiveness. That they would allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and transformation. For some here who have never known that they might discover you to be Savior. And for all of us to allow you to be Lord. Lord, as we come to this week where many will be celebrating and remembering Halloween, that we would remember that we need to take off our mask so that we might follow you honestly. Faithfully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.